Coast Watcher Jacob Charles Vuza. Better I Die 100 Times Than Marine Friends Die. By Major Alan C. Bevilacqua, USMC Retired. Published in the August 2015 edition of Leatherneck Magazine. As read by Nick Wilson. He was an awful mess. I could hardly bear to look at him. After he chewed free of his bonds, he set off to contact the Marines. But after a bit, he became so weak that he had to crawl on all fours. He must have crawled nearly three miles. To this day, I am still in awe at his courage and physical endurance. Martin Clemens, Coast Watcher, Guadalcanal, 1942-1943. In front of the police station on Mandana Avenue in Honiara, capital of the Solomon Islands, there is a life-size bronze statue. The statue is that of Solomon Island's fighting man of a bygone era. With feet firmly planted, the figure stands erect with head held high. A kilt-like garment, such as that worn by Solomon Islanders of long ago, is its sole article of clothing. In its right hand, the statue firmly holds a short sword remarkably like one a Roman soldier would have carried. A look back in time, the image is in odd contrast amid the shiny new cars passing by and the silver passenger airplane on its final approach to Honiera Airport. On the monument's base is a single word inscribed, Vuza. Who was Vuza, but set him apart from everyone else? He was born in Papagu Village in Koli District, West Guadalcanal Province, on the island of Guadalcanal in what was then the British Solomon Islands Protectorate. At that time, no convenient documents, such as birth certificates, were kept neatly on file at the county courthouse, so his date of birth may only be approximated as about 1900. His parents, evangelical Christians, named him Jacob Charles Vuza, although as he grew into manhood, he preferred to be simply known as Vuza. He was educated at the South Seas Evangelical Mission School, where he was noted for his intelligence and direct reasoning ability. An apt student, he was a very active youth, who even at a young age showed signs of an uncommon physical constitution. As a boy, he spent much of his time outside of the classroom roaming the jungle that blanketed the area and developing remarkable skills at woodcraft and tracking. While all young men of his day were very much at home in the outdoors, his skills were above and beyond the ordinary. In 1916, when he was about 17 years old, he was accepted into the BSIP Armed Constabulary and began a 25-year career as a police officer. Some men are born to be doctors. Others find their calling in life as carpenters, mathematicians, or whitewater rafting guides. Vuza and law enforcement were a perfect match. The man was a natural-born police officer. In the summer of 1941, after a career of accomplishments that set a new standard for police work, Sergeant Major Vuza retired. As events would prove, it was only a beginning. Less than a year after Vuza's retirement, war came to the Solomon Islands. After its stunning attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7, 1941 that left America's Pacific Fleet in smoking ruins, Japan thrust deeply into the Southeast Asia and South Pacific. By spring 1942, major Japanese bases had been established as strategically important truck in Rabaul. In June 1942, Japanese troops arrived in the central Solomons and began surveying an airfield on Guadalcanal close to the town of Honiara. Short weeks later, initial construction commenced. 
It was then that Vuza and Martin Clemens entered the picture. Scottish-born Martin Clemens, the Colonial District Commissioner of Guadalcanal, and Vuza were friends of long standing. They had worked closely together when Vuza had been in command of the police detachment on the island of Maleta. Vuza and Clemens joined the ranks of the Coast Watchers, the combined field intelligence service of the Royal Australian Navy. Risking summary execution if they were caught, they worked clandestinely in Japanese-controlled areas, gathered information of intelligence value. They were the first to report Japanese airfield construction activity. The news of a Japanese airfield on Guadalcanal blew American and Australian plans completely out of the water. Japanese bombers from Guadalcanal would be perfectly positioned to inflict pulverizing blows upon the direct convoy route from the American mainland to Australia. An operational Japanese air base on Guadalcanal would change the entire war in the South Pacific. By whatever means necessary, the Japanese could not be allowed to complete their work on Guadalcanal. The only available means of thwarting the Japanese airfield planning was far from ready. Newly arrived in New Zealand, Major General Alexander A. Vandegrift's 1st Marine Division had expected to have six months of training before undertaking active offensive operations. Combat ready or not, there was one thing the 1st Marine Division could do that no other American or Allied force anywhere in the world could undertake. Thanks to extensive training exercises in North Carolina and the Caribbean, the 1st Marine Division could conduct an amphibious assault. On August 7, 1942, with one of his infantry regiments, the 7th Marines, tied to the defense of New Caledonia, General Vandegrift sent his Marines ashore at Guadalcanal. It was a shoestring operation born of dire necessity. Fortunately, the Japanese activity on Guadalcanal was no less an improvisation. The majority of the relatively small Japanese forces on the island were construction personnel, but with but a handful of combat units. The Japanese were completely unprepared. The first American amphibious action of the war was unopposed. By nightfall on L-Day, the airfield was firmly in American hands. The day when Marines came ashore on Guadalcanal was also the day Vuza first met Americans. A U.S. Navy pilot from the aircraft carrier USS Wasp, CV-7, was forced to ditch at sea after the engine of his Grumman F4F Wildcat failed. Brought to shore by Vuza, he was guided to Marine lines, then and there, Vuza volunteered to be a scout for the Marines. The Japanese would be quick to respond to the loss of the airfield. It was a given that Japanese would send major combat units from Rabaul. Vuza's intimate knowledge of the area and his skills in moving about in it would be priceless to the 1st Marine Division's D2 intelligence section. He went to work promptly, guiding Marine units into the jungle surrounding the airfield and the village of Honiara. It was a fortunate move. Within days, major Japanese reinforcements were being introduced under the cover of darkness each night. Japanese bombing raids from Rabaul were a daily occurrence. While Marine engineers and U.S. Navy Seabees worked around the clock to complete the airfield the Japanese had started, Vuzo was in the jungle day and night locating and identifying Japanese activity. It was during one such mission on August 20th that Vuzo was captured by the Japanese. While crossing a particularly treacherous tidal stream, he lost his footing, was knocked down, and swept along by the strong current. He was seen by members of a Japanese patrol who were waiting for him when he fought his way free from the fast-moving water.
Heaving himself onto the stream bank, he was confronted by Japanese with leveled rifles and fixed bayonets. The Japanese were members of a recently arrived unit, the 28th Infantry Regiment, 7th Infantry Division, commanded by Colonel Kianao Ichiki and commonly listed as the Ichiki Detachment. The unit had been slated to be the landing force for the Japanese assault on Midway in May. Following the decisive Japanese defeat at Midway, the Ichiki Detachment had been diverted to Guadalcanal. The unit's mission was to overwhelm the Marine positions protecting the airfield. Begun by the Japanese and vital to the Marines, the airfield had been completed and named Henderson Field in honor of Marine aviator Major Lofton R. Henderson, who had been killed at Midway. One day, in the far-off future, Henderson Field would be a modern facility, Honiara International Airport, hosting airline services to the Solomons. It was critically important to the Marines on Guadalcanal. The first marine aviation units on the island had arrived even as Vuza became a prisoner of the Japanese. If Guadalcanal were to be held, Henderson Field had to be held. Vuza was taken before an English-speaking Japanese officer. Confronted by a barrage of questions, Vuza stood mutely, trying to convince his inquisitor he did not speak or understand English, that he was nothing more than an unremarkable Solomon Island native. The ruse was unsuccessful. Upon searching him, the Japanese found a small folded American flag hidden in his clothing. He was taken to a tree where he was tied, to the, tied with vines. The questioning was accomplished by merciless beating. Vuza refused to utter a sound. Shouting questions and demanding answers, the officers thrust his sword into Vuza's face, shoulders, and chest. Vuza denied his captors the satisfaction of hearing him emit a sound of pain. The officer stepped aside to allow soldiers to use their bayonets. Each of ten bayonet thrusts was accompanied by a demand for his knowledge of marine defenses. In spite of excruciating pain, Vuza refused to utter a word. Through it all, the English-speaking officer taunted Vuza, boasting of the crushing defeat we will inflict upon your friends tonight. Vuza remained silent as the officer snarled obscenities and barked demands for answers to his questions, accompanied by the bayonet slashes with vivid descriptions of how and where the Japanese would overwhelmed the defenders of the airfield. The officer had no intention of leaving Vuza alive. If he knew what the Japanese planned, he would not live to tell of it. At last, convinced that Vuza was dead, the Japanese walked off casually, joking and laughing. It was a mistake that would cost all of them their lives. Vuza wasn't dead, knowing one thing, that he must somehow warn the Marines of where the impending attacks would fall and the numbers of Japanese that would make the attack, he freed himself from the bonds that pinioned him to the tree. How? He chewed through the vines holding him there. In an indescribable agony and drenched in his own blood, he chewed his way free. With strength born of determination and an iron sense of duty, Vuza set out to give a warning. Later, he would say, Better I die a hundred times than Marine friends die. With blood flowing from wounds that would have put most people in a hospital bed, sometimes walking, sometimes crawling on hands and knees, he fought to remain conscious and keep moving. He later would relate that at times he felt as though he was outside of his physical form, watching himself staggering and stumbling his way through terrain that would have taxed the stamina of a strong, healthy man. At other times, instinct alone carried him. Shortly before dusk, covered with his own blood and bleeding from his mouth where a sword thrust had cut his tongue, he lurched and crawled into the defensive positions of Lieutenant Colonel Edwin A. Pollock's 2nd Battalion. In response to the challenge of the first Marine he met, Vuzi replied, Do not kill me. Japanese already have. 
With Martin Clemens at his side, Vusa refused medical treatment until he related all he had learned from the conversations with his captors. Pausing from time to time to clear his mouth of blood from his lacerated tongue, he reported everything he had heard. The Japanese would attack shortly after midnight with a force he estimated at 700 to 800 men. The attack would come at low tide from the opposite bank of the tidal river that fronted the marine positions. He had overheard nothing that would indicate that Japanese carried crew-served weapons other than machine guns and light mortars. Exhausted and drifting out of consciousness, Vuza was rushed to the 1st Medical Battalion where Commander Warwick T. Brown, Medical Corps, U.S. Navy, and a team of surgeons strove to save his life. Shortly after midnight, precisely when and where Vuza said the Japanese would attack, Kianao Ichiki threw waves of assailants against the Marines' positions. It was the first organized attack of what eventually would be numerous such attacks that would attempt to overrun the airfield. While it went into the records as the Battle of Tanaru, some maps showed the river as Ilu, while still others gave the name Tanaru to a small nearby town. In some local usage, the river was called Alligator Creek. Tanaru, Ilu, or Alligator Creek may have been confusing. There was no confusion about the Japanese attack that night. During the Pacific War, the Japanese would stage other such bonsai attacks, seeking to overcome defenders by sheer weight of numbers. The attack of the Ichiki detachment was that night was the first Marines would experience, and it was something beyond sheer violence. The Battle of Tanaru was horror and savagery writ large. Despite Marine fire that tore into them, the Japanese stormed forward over the dead bodies of their comrades. Surging into the Marine line, making the fight a face-to-face, hand-to-hand affair. Second Lieutenant Robert McLannan, wounded in both arms, both legs, and his hip, loaded Browning Automatic Rifle magazines for able-bodied Marines of his platoon. When the entire crew of a 37mm anti-tank anti-personnel gun was killed or wounded, nearby Marines, who never before had manned the weapon, took over and continued firing canister rounds into the ranks of charging Japanese. When Corporal Dean Wilson's BAR jammed, he drew a machete and hacked three attackers to bloody tatters. From their post near the mouth of the Tanaru, Corporal Leroy Diamond's three-man squad employed their Browning Model 1917 A1 water-cooled 30 caliber heavy 30 machine gun with devastating effect. The Japanese kept coming. Corporal Diamond was wounded in both shoulders, unable to use either hand. Private First Class Johnny Rivers, a gunner, was killed. Private Albert A. Al Schmidt, assistant gunner, kept the gun in action, laying streams of fire into the Japanese. Blinded by a Japanese grenade, Schmidt kept firing, and Corporal Diamond calling out estimated corrections and deflection and elevation. Right three up one, left two, left three up two. Unable to see and working by touch, Al Schmidt used the gun's search and traverse hand wheels to follow Diamond's directions firing a short burst to keep the gun from overheating after the water jacket was pierced by grenade fragments. Al Schmidt, Johnny Rivers, and Leroy Diamond each would receive the Navy Cross for that night on Tunaru. The Marines of 2-1 were hard-pressed throughout the night. The Cheeky Detachment was wiped out. For his courageous action in warning the Marines of the impending attack despite life-threatening wounds, Vuza would receive the Silver Star the highest award a division commander could make without reference to a higher headquarters. General Vandegrift himself would affix the medal to Vuza's hospital gown as he lay fighting for his life. Vuza also would receive the George Medal, a decoration personally authorized by King George VI for acts of great bravery, 
by persons other than members of the armed forces from Great Britain. Closing Vuz's multiple wounds would require almost 100 sutures. He received 16 pints of blood. In an incredible two weeks, Vuza was back in his feet and out of the hospital. Less than two weeks after that, he became chief scout for the 1st Marine Division, once again leading patrols and reconnoitering Japanese troops' strength in locations. During November and December, Vuza and a contingent of scouts he personally had selected accompanied Lieutenant Colonel Evan Arf Carlson's 2nd Raider Battalion that would be called the Long Patrol. The patrol was an epic of endurance. Through it all, a man who had been at death's door was an inspirational example of stamina. For 30 days, Carlson's raiders operated behind Japanese lines, creating havoc and spreading destruction. Thanks to Vuza and his scouts, Carlson's raiders never at any time were surprised by the Japanese. Every bit of information taken back to the main body proved to be 100% correct. For his role in providing information and security during the long patrol, Vuza received the Legion of Merit. Accolades continued to come his way during the after-war years. He was inducted as a member of the Order of the British Empire and became head man, mayor of his village. His home village was renamed California in his honor. By special order of Commandant of the Marine Corps, Vuza was named an honorary Marine with the greatest sergeant major. He was promoted to the police force rank of inspector. He was appointed district head man and served as president of the Native Council and as a member of the Solomon Islands Advisory Council. By unanimous vote of membership, he was made a life member of the 1st Marine Division Association. In 1953, Vuza represented the Solomon Islands at a coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. In later years, he was knighted by the Queen. Throughout the years, Vuza often voiced a desire to see America. In 1968, he was invited by 1st Marine Division Association as guest of honor at the association's annual reunion, held that year in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was taken on tours of Los Angeles, California, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., where he met Secretary of State Dean Rusk. Australian-born June Heim, whose husband, Gordon Heim, was one of the association's founding members, met him that year. More than 40 years later, June Heim would recall with vivid clarity Fuza's dignified bearing and gentlemanly manner. As the years slipped away, the trail before Vuza grew shorter and the shadows grew closer. In his last message to the 1st Marine Division Association, he wrote, Tell them I love them all. I am old man now, but I never forget them. Never. The Honorable Sergeant Major Sir Jacob Vuza slipped away quietly in his sleep on March 5, 1984. He was a citizen of the Solomon Islands by birth, a knight of the realm by decree of the Queen, and an American by right of blood he carried within him in his affection for a land he saw only once in his lifetime. When Sir Jacob Vuza was carried to his final resting place, he was clad in the dress uniform of an inspector of police and one thing more. That one thing more was his prized possession, a gift of the 1st Marine Division Association, a Marine Corps battle jacket of World War II design bearing the Eagle Globe and Anchor emblem of the United States Marine Corps and the rank insignia of a Sergeant Major of the Marines. The independent Solomon Islands are a constitutional monarchy within the British Commonwealth of Nations today. In those far-off islands, there are two bits of the Marine Corps. Vuz's home in California Village is a Solomon Islands National Heritage Site, maintained as it was during his lifetime. On a nightstand behind his bed, his many medals and decorations are permanently displayed in a glass case. 
Standing beside the case are the flags of the United States of America and the United States Marine Corps. In front of the police station on Mandana Avenue in Honiara, capital of the Solomon Islands, there is a life-size bronze statue. The statue is that of a Solomon Islands fighting man of a bygone era. His name was Vuza. He was a sergeant major of the Marines. Author's bio. Major Alan C. Bevilacqua, a Leatherneck contributing editor, is a former enlisted Marine who served in the Korean and Vietnam Wars as well as on an exchange tour with the French Foreign Legion in Algeria. Later in his career, he was an instructor at Amphibious Warfare School and Command and Staff College, Quantico, Virginia.